Genesis chapter number 33. I want to stop, and I may I may address this a little bit further, maybe in the this in the next service. But but before we get into the Sunday school lesson today, I want to address something that has become very prominent this week. Actually, it's been over a course of about three or four weeks. I've talked to a number of people that are looking for churches. And uh, probably I would say at least six or seven um, in the last four weeks. And it's amazing to me, and, and kind of had this thought uh, come to my heart, it, uh, what people are looking for in a church. And can I say this, and I, I want to say this kindly, and I want to say it carefully, but one of the things that, uh, there, there seems to be a repetitive thing that, a theme that people are focusing on when looking for a church. Number one, they want to feel like they're part of a family. I think that's certainly scriptural and biblical, that we are all part of a, um, a body of believers. But secondly, they are looking for one that they can feel good at and have enjoyment in. And when, when they say these things, what they are implying is that they are entertained by it. That it's something that, that uh, is enjoyable to them like a day at the, picnic, at the beach or going on a picnic in the park. And uh, that there not be any distress in the service. Um, and then the other one, that, that the other theme that seems to be a huge issue for people, and I see this probably, I don't know that there's been one person I've talked to recently that did not bring this particular thing up. And that is that they do not feel like they're being judged at a church. And I want to address that third one especially this morning for a moment. Uh, certainly we ought not to be judging one another because all of us are, are sinners. Amen? We, we all have some faults. And who are we to uh, accuse and to bring a railing accusation against one of our brothers and sisters in Christ? I do believe that if we see them in a fault, that if we love them with the spirit of humility and meekness, we go to them. And in a loving way, try to be a help and an encouragement to them to get that thing better. I believe the Bible teaches that. But what these folks are meaning when they say we don't want to go to a church where we feel like it's a judgmental church is what they're saying is they don't want to feel uneasy in their conscience. That's what they're saying. And while I don't believe that we ought to internally be judging one another uh, in a spirit of maliciousness and trying to make others look bad, we all are to be judged by a standard. And the standard is God's Word. And there used to be a day where we understood as Christians that when we come and measure ourselves alongside of God's Word as our measuring stick, that it judges us. And there is something that we call conviction. And it ought to make us feel uneasy. I was talking to a fellow just about a year ago. And he said, I want to go to a church where I don't feel like I'm uneasy all the time, where I have to get things right all the time. And my thought is, in my heart, if there's that much wrong with me, if it's every Sunday, if it's every Wednesday that my heart is being dealt with, where I need to deal with something and get it right, I hope, I hope that my conscience makes me feel uneasy. <clears throat> and I understand 
that there came a time where there was a lot of um, uh, very pious people who, who came around and looked down their noses somewhat, uh, that I'm spiritual and you're not, and that that created a, a bad taste in some people's mouths. But it has, it has grown into a place where people that are looking for a church don't ever want to, to experience conviction. The book of James talks about a man who's a hearer only and not a doer, beholding his natural face in a glass, and beholding what manner of man they are, what manner of person they are, and going uh, their way and forgetting what, what the Bible has shown them. And we're living in those days. We're living in the days where people don't like to look in the mirror of God's Word. Because the truth is, when we look into the mirror of God's Word, we find how we do not measure up, don't we? The Bible says that the law was given to be our schoolmaster, to bring us to Christ, to show us our shortcomings and how we cannot save ourselves. And there ought to come that time where when we come to God's house and we study the Bible, or we're having our personal time with God throughout the week and reading there ought to be times where we ask for God to search our hearts and see if there be any wicked way in us. And, and if there is, point it out to us. Help us to find that and to get that thing rooted out. Some things we know, don't we? Because we've willingly gone into it. But there are some things we may not realize. We've not read or studied in God's Word. And we have downplayed the, the idea of... Uh, conviction so much in our culture today that Christians, good Christians, in looking for churches are not looking for a church that first of all will teach the truth of God's Word without man's opinion. They're not looking for a church that will teach them the doctrines of God's Word. They're looking for a church that makes them feel good that they do not have to deal with the issue of conviction. They want to leave there feeling like they've done their Christian duty that week and feeling good. And I want to encourage you to be praying, if you would, for this, this type of a thing in our, in our culture, in our society, that there will become an enlightening of, of our hearts and our minds to realize the importance of taking our life and laying it alongside of God's Word and searching it trying to see how we measure up. And yes, it is putting it in a scale. It's judging. If the Bible says this and my life is doing something different, how do I measure up? Uh, but it ought to be something that we long for and that we do on our own. And I hope you'll pray with me about this because we're living in a day where uh, good people uh, are looking for churches and they're not being fed spiritually because... Uh, they're, they're looking for something that will not um, teach all of the gospel of Christ, that will teach all of the Bible for fear of, a, uh, of offending somebody. And so pray for that. I, I think some of the big problems we have with the, uh, the L, LGBT, whatever letters of the alphabet group that there are, are because of churches that have tried to be so careful to fit into this mold of making everybody feel like they're okay. And yet the Bible does divide some things for us. It causes us to have uh, conviction. So not part of the Sunday school lesson. It's just something that has been of concern to me recently. And I wish you'd pray with me on the topic. Uh, we may deal with it a little bit later from a biblical perspective in our service, uh, either today or maybe next week or so, um, trying to find out some things of what we should be looking for. 
uh, when it comes to a church. Not that I'm looking for you all to go find another church, but I want us to be able to talk to other people about it. Somebody comes to you and says, I'm looking for a church. We ought to be able to help guide them from a biblical perspective and not just from a cultural or a feel-good type of a uh, uh, foundation. All right? So take that for what it was worth. It's free. You didn't have to pay extra for that one, okay? If you didn't like it, uh, I'll give your money back. I may have to borrow it from Brother Keith, but (laughs) you have to. Brother Ron? Right. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. Sure. Amen. Yeah. Amen. I was talking to Miss Sylvia today, and uh, I've been in churches uh, in my lifetime that have had people that have the gift of encouragement, which I believe is a, is a spiritual gift God gives certain people that uh, natural ability to be encouraging. I have never come to a church that has had so many people in it that have that that ability to just encourage one another, love one another. Um, if we see that there's a problem, we, we help each other. We don't, we don't kick each other and knock them down and make them feel bad. We try to help them. And uh, there's not a person that comes through those doors that's not welcome in our church. And I'm thankful for that. Uh, doesn't mean we have to condone their sin no more than we condone our sin. But we want to love people. And we do want to teach the truth of God's Word. Uh, How many of you have reached the pinnacle spiritually? You have arrived spiritually. You are all that God ever wanted you to be spiritually. Anybody there yet? (laughs) That means we're all still growing, isn't it? And some are at different levels than others, and that's fine. But we all ought to be making progress. Amen? We all ought to be growing. And there's, there's the temptation, and this is one of the problems that... I think has led to this this mentality in our society that there are some people who are very spiritually mature. And when someone who is spiritually immature comes into the church, uh, they have the tendency to compare themselves with themselves, and the Bible warns against that. And almost like the the Pharisee or the the uh, uh, the uh, Pharisee who stood up and um, uh, said, "I'm thankful that I'm not as this publican, this sinner down here." Uh, we ought never be that way. We ought never be that way. Uh, we ought to take our life and, and lay it alongside God's Word and say, Lord, how do I measure up? And uh, I, I hope every one of us will do that. And I, I've, got, I've got more than enough to worry about keeping my life in line with God's Word to try to worry about uh, going out here and spending all my time looking at other people's lives and trying to figure out how they measure up to God's Word. <coughs> so I want to encourage you in that. And Brother Ron, I appreciate those words. And certainly we have a kind church. I, I'm not, I don't want us to sound like we're a mean-spirited church at all. Uh, but we, we, we are living in a day where people do not know what to look for in a church. They just don't. And um, I, I want to encourage you in this. And Pray about it, not only in our own lives, but that we'll be able to help 
uh, other people when they come to us and talking with them about this. And I've had the, the privilege of sharing that with each of the folks. And um, some of them have parted and disagreed. And that's, that's fine. At least I was able to share with them. Uh, a couple of them agreed with it. Uh, they didn't end up coming to our church, which was fine. But they started looking for a church for the right reasons. And so praise the Lord for that. And we'll keep praying that way. All right. Genesis chapter 33. Uh, last week we dealt with... Um, uh, Jacob and Esau meeting together and how there was great grace given. Boy, I'll tell you, when you, uh, when you come with a spirit of humility and you come with a spirit of grace, you usually reap what you've sown in that area. If you come with humility, you're going to reap humility. If you come with grace and graciousness, many times you're going to reap graciousness. Uh, the Bible says, a soft answer turneth away wrath. My dad used to say years ago, he said, usually the difference between a large problem between people and a small problem between people is 24 hours. If you just let yourself cool down and deal with it from a soft answer and a soft uh, discussion, let your emotions cool down, it makes a, a big problem a small one. And uh, there ought to be some graciousness. So we learned a little bit about that last week. We'll pick up reading in uh, verse number... I'm going to back up a little bit into what we read last week so we can get a running start. <coughs> and um, verse number 8. Esau says, and he said, What meanest thou by all this drove which I met? And he said, These are to find grace in the sight of my Lord. So this is the reason that that Jacob is doing this, to find grace in the sight of Esau. And Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep that thou hast unto thyself. And Jacob said, Nay, I pray thee, if now I have found grace in thy sight, then receive my present at my hand. For therefore I have seen thy face, as though I had seen the face of God, and thou wast pleased with me, take I pray thee my blessing that is brought to thee, because God hath dealt graciously with me, and because I have, I have enough. And he urged him, and he took it. At this point, I want you to understand that uh, Jacob's life has had another milestone of growth spiritually. This is uh, akin to the time when he uh, met the Lord at Bethel, and God did a marvelous work in his life. God has once again stepped in and intervened. Uh, he has wrestled with God the night before. Uh, God has blessed him. God has given him the name of Israel. And um, now is uh, allowing the, uh, the division, the strife, the discord, the anger, the bitterness between Esau and Jacob to be repaired and mended. And by the way, isn't it a sweet time when God comes in the middle of a contentious situation and allows there to be reconciliation between the two. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Uh, it's such a, an amazing thing to watch because many times uh, when, when we look at it from human eyes, we look at situations like that and say, well, there's no way that that can ever be reconciled. But can I tell you this, that with God, all things can happen with regards to reconciling things. And uh, he certainly uh, intervened in this case. We see uh, Esau and, and uh, Brother Douglas mentioned last Sunday after the Sunday school lesson, he said in learning about that last week and reading about it, there was something also obvious in the passage, and that was God must have been dealing with Esau along the, the same time. He certainly has dealt in Esau's life. Uh, because Esau was a man who, uh, last time he had seen Jacob, said, I'm going to kill you. And now he comes and he embraces his brother. And he doesn't, he doesn't even want to take the gifts that Jacob is offering. And he's, he's telling his brother, look, I forgive you. Uh, let's, let's put those things behind us, and I'm just glad to have my brother back. 
And by the way, it's a wonderful thing when there's a discord among uh, God's people and God intervenes on that and allows there to be a reconciliation uh, and we reclaim a brother that was lost. And I'll tell you, there's a sweetness to that. Uh, both of these guys are at a spiritual pinnacle in their life. These these things that God is doing, and I, I can only imagine the the excitement that that must be there. Uh, there's times in my life where uh, I have I have done things my own way, and I've gotten away, and I haven't sought for the Lord's leading on some things, and I have made a royal mess of things. And then there have been other times where it just feels like God is just making everything work out right. And those are the spiritual times where we rejoice and we call them mountaintop experiences. And uh, we know what that's like, to be in a valley and then to be on the mountaintop. And can I say that at this point we find that Jacob and Esau, if I were looking at this and and trying to put myself in either one of their places, I would say that this is a spiritual mountaintop in their life. Uh, a time of maybe even spiritual revival, if you will, uh, of their hearts being drawn closer not only to one another but to God. And uh, that there's this spiritual walk that's taking place. Now, understand what we've dealt with with the life of Jacob at this point. He's been with Laban, his father-in-law, for uh, almost 20 years, and uh, right about 20 years. God comes to him and he says, I want you to go. I'm the God that met you at Bethel. He said, I want you to return to the land of your fathers. With the idea being, I want you to go to a place that's going to encourage you and build you spiritually. He makes reference to the fact that it was the God of Bethel and he wants him to return to the land of his fathers. And so, uh, whether it's the exact location of Bethel or not, it certainly was God's intent for Jacob's heart uh, to be brought back to the land of his fathers and for him to continue uh, in, in the presence of God that he experienced at Bethel. Now, we're going to find something here, and the lesson today is going to be dealing with uh, you can't straddle the fence, all right? Uh, you can't straddle the fence. There's a, a lot of times that we try to put one foot following God and another foot following our will. And we're going to see that even though Jacob is at a spiritual pinnacle and a mountaintop here, he's going to make some decisions that are not led by God. And he's going to try to do some things that are his will and his way of doing things. And in a few chapters here, it's going to be one of the biggest regrets and probably one of the biggest mistakes of his life. Now, as we look at this, in verse number 12, it says, And he said, speaking of Esau, And he said, Let us take our journey, and let us go, and I will go before thee. And he said unto him, My Lord knoweth that the children are tender, and the flocks and herds with the young are with me, and if men should overdrive them one day, all the flock will die. Let my Lord, I pray thee, pass over before his servant, and I will lead on softly, according as the cattle that goeth before me, and the children be able to endure until I come unto my Lord unto Seir. And Esau said, Let me now leave with thee some of the folk that are with me. And he said, What needeth it? Let me find grace in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned uh, that day on his way unto Seir. And Jacob journeyed unto Succoth, and built him an house, and made booths for his cattle. Therefore the name of this place, of the place, was called Succoth. And Jacob came to uh, Shalem, a city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Pandar- uh, Pandarum, and pitched his tent before the city. 
and he bought a parcel of field, uh, a par- bought a parcel of a field where he had spread his tent at the hand of the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for an hundred pieces of money, and he re- re- erected there an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. I want you to notice a few things here. Esau says, listen, brother, let's go on our way. Uh, let's, now that we're together, let's not part ways again. And he's reclaimed a brother. And I'm not sure, and the Bible doesn't give us, I certainly would not want to speculate what would have happened had Jacob gone after and followed after Esau. Uh, uh, but we do know this, that, uh, that Jacob is not supposed to be following Esau at this point, aren't we? Who's he supposed to be following? Who's leading him and in, in, in guiding him where he's supposed to be going? God is, okay? God has led him up to this point. God's told him to leave his, his uh, father-in-law. God's told him to go to the land of his fathers. And uh, that he was the God of Bethel. And uh, so he, he's giving direction to Jacob. At this point, we find that Jacob starts to make some excuses with Esau. And it would have been just, I, I think, in my, in my mind, in reading this, it would have been just easier for Jacob to say, you know what, Esau, God is guiding me. God's uh, directing me in my life. And I need to see where he's leading me right now. And instead, he doesn't do that. He starts to make some excuses. And as much faith as he's had in God up to this point, uh, it's almost like he, he, he tries to, in one breath, uh, follow God and be yielded to Him and be surrendered to Him, and then in the, and clinging to His feet and saying, I'm not going to let you go till you bless me. And then in the next hand, he's worried about what men are thinking about him. And, and so we find that he starts to make some excuses. And he tells his brother, he says, I can't drive the herds, and, and we got... Uh, women and children with us, and we can't we can't move as fast as you with 400 men can move, and we would just hold you back. And brother, why don't you just go on, and uh, and I'll go my way. And uh, once again, we find that Jacob is is starting to sink back to the fault that he has had for most of his life, and that is being worried about what other people thought of him. Uh, how often we get things right with God, and we think that we have the victory in that area. And then we find ourselves going back on it, don't we? Uh, you ever notice that? I don't know if anybody else has had that problem, but I'll tell you this. When I was a teenager especially, uh, there were times that there would be great preaching and, and youth rallies and, and revivals and camps and, and camp meetings and missions conferences. And, and God would stir my heart in some unusual ways. And I would come to an altar and I would make some commitments to God. And I would do really good for a week or two or sometimes three, maybe four. And then I started noticing, I started dropping off a little bit here and a little bit there. And uh, all of a sudden, I began to start coming right back to the same old things that I used to do. Here we find Jacob, and, and he's no different than you and I. Uh, it's amazing to me how many life lessons uh, we can relate to in the life of Jacob. So he starts making excuses. He's trying to, uh, to portray uh, to Esau something that really isn't the real reason why he's not going with Esau. And then we find here in verse number 15, And Esau said, Let me now leave thee some of the folk that are with me. And he said, What needeth it? Let me find grace in the sight of my Lord. And so Esau's saying, Okay, you know what? Uh, we'll go on ahead. I'll leave some of my people here. And the implication is that, you know, when you catch up, they can rejoin me. And, and, but we'll leave some of my men here to help protect and guide you and help you along the way. And once again, Jacob decides, I'm going to refuse that. Once again, he tries to give a reason. He says, look, I've got enough. I can handle myself. 
Uh, there's no need for that. So the Bible says Esau goes on. And this is where I want us to focus for the next few moments as we finish up the Sunday school hour this morning. Verse number 16. So Esau returned that day unto his way, on his way unto Seir. And Jacob journeyed to Succoth, built him a house, and made booths for his cattle. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. Now, it had been one thing if Jacob had gone this way. He goes down towards Can- what, what later is known as the area of the Canaanites, uh, very pagan people, very ungodly people. Now, God's called him to go back to where? His, his family roots, didn't he? Where there's some spiritual guidance. Uh, God's trying to, to say, listen, uh, I'm the God that met you at Bethel. I want you to go back to that area. I want you to go back to those places where I can do more through you than I want to do. And Jacob stops following God here and goes to the place that he looks at and says, I want to go here. He goes down to a place called Succoth, and uh, it's down in the area of Shechem. And uh, we're going to see in chapter 34 and 35, probably one of the biggest mistakes Jacob ever makes is going down to Shechem. And uh, we find here in verse number 17, the Bible says, And Jacob journeyed to Succoth, built him a house, and made booths for his cattle. So this is something that is a decisive move for Jacob. He's not just sojourning. He's not just following God and waiting until God puts him in the right place. He goes to to this area, and he settles in, and he digs some roots in. He starts to stick his roots in the ground. Last week, Uh, On Sunday morning, we dealt with the topic of being rooted, being in Christ, and the fact that one of the things that we can do to be in Christ is to be rooted, to sink our roots deep into the things of the Lord and into His Word. But can I tell you this, and we didn't talk about it in in the service last week, it is possible for you and I to sink our roots in something that is not a right way to sink, or not a right place to sink our roots. It's possible to start putting our, our roots down and absorbing nurture uh, nourishments that are not wholesome for us. It was said of Lot that he was a just man, and the Bible says that just Lot vexed his righteous soul from day to day in seeing and hearing the things that were being done in Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot had sunk his roots. He had, he had decided, I'm not just going to sojourn here, I'm going to stay here. And he begins to sink his roots in, and he's receiving the wrong kind of nourishment, and it begins to affect him, and it begins to affect his family. And we find that this is going to happen as we look into chapter 34 and 35. We're going to see the effect that this has on Jacob. He begins to come to this place of, of, of Salem, uh, Shalem, the city of Shechem, uh, where is in the land of Canaan, uh, when he came from Pandaren, verse number 18, and he pitched his tent before the city. Verse number 17, it says that he built him a house and made booths for his cattle. He's building barns and, and things for his cattle. This, this is a place that Jacob is deciding, I am going to settle here. Not in a place of spiritual victory that God had met him at Bethel in, but in a place where there are pagan folks and, and a constant uh, input and bombardment of secular things. And he bought a parcel, verse number 19, a field where he had spread his tent at the hand of the children of Hamar, uh, Shechem's father, for a hundred pieces of money. And this is a, a key verse, verse number 20. And he erected there, what? An altar. An altar to the pagan gods of Shechem? Or who does he, who does he build the altar to? He builds the altar to what? 
to God. Isn't it amazing that here he is, his, his flesh nature is wanting to be a part of this area of the country that is known for its paganism, for its ungodliness, and for its idols. And yet he's trying to say, while I want to have my life here, I want to have my spiritual walk with God. Can I tell you this, that you cannot mix the two. They are opposing the one to the other. Jacob's going to learn this. He's going to learn it the hard way. So he builds this altar, and notice it says here that he calls it El Elohi Israel. This, stand, this means God, God of Israel. God, God of Israel. Now, understand that he has, is not speaking of Israel as a nation at this point, but speaking of Jacob. Jacob's name has been changed to Israel. And so we find that uh, he's saying, okay, God, I, I want to follow you, but I also want to have this area of my life. I want to walk in the flesh. Now, now, follow me for a moment, because this is so applicable to today, is it not? How many people, how many times in my life, and how many times in your life, do we find the desire to follow God and to follow Him wholly? If I went around the room and asked for us to raise hands, most of us here, if not all of us, would raise our hands and say, Brother Greg, at least from time to time, I have a desire to follow God with all of my heart. I, I just want to, there, there are times I just want to forsake all of the world and pursue after God and God only and never have to deal with the world again. And there are times that we have those desires and hopefully it's more times than not. But how often that we have the desire to have God as our God and to pursue after Him, but we want to keep at least one foot in the world. We want to, we want to, we want to still be able to do some things that we used to do in the old life. We want to be able to feed some of the old appetites that we used to have. We're not quite ready to give those up yet. But, but God, I want to follow You. I want to love you. It's amazing to me how much of a battle that I personally know of in my life. Paul said it this way. And Paul was a great example, wasn't he, in Scripture? Probably one of the greatest Christians of, of the New Testament. Wrote more Scripture than any other man. You know what Paul said about it? He said, the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is what? Weak. Paul had the same battle. You and I have the same battle. We, we have the desire to make God our God, to pursue after Him with all of our hearts. But Lord, let me, in this area, just, just this area, it's not going to matter. It's a small thing, God. I, 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 those appetites I used to have, those things I used to desire that were of the flesh nature, I, I don't want to give those up. I still want to be able to do those things. I still want to be able to enjoy that. Jacob went from being on the mountaintop spiritually in the first part of chapter 33 to becoming a man that's trying to straddle the fence. He's trying to have one foot on the things of the Lord and one foot in the world. And can I tell you this? It never works. It never works. Because the Bible says that our flesh is at an enmity with God. It's, it, it's directly opposed to it. It's constant struggle. It's constant fighting. And it's impossible to have one foot in the world and one foot on the things of the Lord. We're going to find out how this 
plays out in Jacob's life because he's going to pay some very, very harsh prices. He's going to have kids that are vile, wicked, murderous in their mindset. All because he went to Shechem. He didn't go the right place. He didn't go where God had led him. He was obedient at the first, but somewhere along the line there were some fleshly appetites, some influences in his life that said, it's okay to follow God, just don't follow Him completely. And by the way, that's the same argument that Satan makes in my life and the same argument he makes in yours. He doesn't tell you not to follow God. He just simply says, don't do it completely. I want you to keep some things for me. And isn't that the battle? Isn't that the thing that becomes a daily struggle in the Christian life? Every time there's a temptation, that's the battle going on. The old flesh appetites or the things of the Lord. I hope we can learn as Christians that part of becoming spiritually mature is getting to where more and more we do not straddle the fence. We decide, Lord, I'm going to follow you. And if it costs me some of my old appetites, some of my old desires, some of the old things that I love to do, then that's, that's just something I'm willing to do. Because, Lord, I want to follow you all the way with all of my heart. Next week, don't miss it, we're going to start looking at how this then starts to affect Jacob and his children and his wives and his family. It's heartbreaking, really, in some ways. Before we become too judgmental of him, understand this, that even though this was written so many years ago, and even though these people lived so many thousands of years ago, really the circumstances have not changed from today, have they? We still face the same struggles in the life that we live today. All right, let's pray we'll be uh, dismissed. Father, we're thankful for your word. I pray that you'll bless it and use it. Lord, as we learn from Jacob's life, I pray that you'd help us to look at that and say, Lord, help us to learn what you would have us to from him, that we would not make the same mistakes, that we would be able to guard against them, and, Lord, that we would walk with you, that you would have uh, a draw of our hearts that would cause us to love you more every day, to draw closer to you every day, to become more of what we ought to be for you every single day, that there would be a growth in this, in this life of our Christian lives and the dedication, the consecration that we have towards you, the commitment that we have towards you. I pray that you'll bless the service, Lord, and use it uh, for your honor and glory in the next hour and that you would speak to our hearts. I pray that you'd help us to begin praying now that your Holy Spirit would guide and direct us. Dismiss us now with your blessings. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.